This is Thomas DePolo. Hey, this is Melon Bread. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. Alright, so the uh, second Night at the Opera summer contest just wrapped up. This was a contest comprised around creating original uh, groups for Delta Green, for the universe, whether they're allies, adversaries, or somewhere in between. Uh, We had uh, 21 entries over, I think, 15 or 16 submitters, and then everything got voted on uh, by the people who submitted, much like the first summer contest, which was set pieces. Jeez, was was that really a year ago? Yeah, I figured we'd take a minute to talk about the, the winners, and some of us submitted, so we'll talk about maybe our submissions and anything else you wanted to, to hit. Well, uh, I guess the best place to start is probably with the winners, right? Yeah, so uh, let's go backwards and end with the first place winner, because that'll that'll you know that'll uh, improve our search engine optimization and uh, you know really something something in the podcast. So there were actually two third place winners. Because the mathematical third place winner was myself and Melon Bread, and as the Green Box sponsored the contest, we did not feel right uh, giving ourselves a prize. So mathematically, uh, we had a winner in there, but uh, the next two were tied, which was a tie between a group called Project Praise by Will Wright and a group called Through Line News by Michael Fox. The Michael J. Fox? I mean, the Michael Fox. Oh, okay. Take it back then. I was going to say something mean about uh, working through Parkinson's disease, but never mind. That joke didn't land last time you made it, so I don't know why you thought it would land. Now. I haven't made that joke before, so I'm not sure. Someone what... made that joke, and it didn't land. Well, you know what they say about grapevines, I guess. All right, so somebody give me a little kind of executive summary of uh, Project Praise, or rather, give our listeners an executive summary of Project Praise. Project Praise is a group of uh, cult D programmers. It's Christian charity reconverting cultists from uh, their false gods to Jesus Christ. Uh, what's notable about it is that uh, they come into contact with cultists, you know, like great old one cultists, and they just don't believe in it. Like, I guess maybe like the power of Christ uh, compels them to not have to worry about Azathoth or any of the other uh, the big name ones out there. Uh, it's basically a bunch of former law enforcement and military guys. Isn't that the 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 shtick so to speak of the papal state uh delta green that they 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 don't really believe in the old ones they just think everything is satan and that's like how they roll i forget i remember there was an article like fighting cthulhu in the name of the of god or something i'll pull it up yeah yeah melon knows about that one right uh i know you've talked about that one before uh which thing is that that i allegedly know about the catholic uh the, the pope's group that fights the mythos uh, there was an article about it on the Delta Green site. I would advise you to consult that for more information about it. But uh, I'm not having it in front of me. Cannot uh, tell you how similar or dissimilar it is to this group. I think that they're two different approaches because that one is sort of like, uh, you know, just combating the mythos. But these guys, Project Praise, it's about uh, deprogramming, exit counseling, uh, working through. It's actually a pretty interesting process. I think the author went through a uh, a book called the uh, strategic interactive approach and just kind of gamified that a little bit i was only using them as a, as a parallel because of the way they they look at the similar way in which they view 
you know, Cthulhu and the great old ones existing or not existing. How's that? They, they view it as a bunch of nonsense because uh, uh, the only thing that okay, then that's to... then that's very different because the uh, the ones in the Glancy Catholic mythos group uh, believe that the mythos is very real and that it's demons. They don't believe that the cults are just harmless gibberish. They believe that the cults are the interaction of real demonic forces with our world. Well, what did you guys think about this group? I think it's an interesting uh, idea. I like the idea that it could be something that's tied into the Delta Green scenario by way of uh, using like a deprogrammed cultist to give information to your party. Um, and, you know, probably wouldn't be as easy as just getting the information for free. You'd have to, you know, make inroads with Project Praise and prove that you're not just a bunch of cultists yourselves and kind of forge that relationship, but it could be a good payoff there. Uh, you know, they're not, these are allies that aren't going to help you kick in doors, so to speak, I don't think, but their allies are going to help you with the investigation side where we, uh, agents can sometimes run into trouble. It does give agents like an interesting different option because what's the, you know, let's say that uh, the you roll the dice in the combat or whatever and the cultist doesn't end up dead. So the next thing that you're going to want to do is try and get some information out of them, right? You know, when, when you're on the spot, uh, tell me about this thing. No, uh, smack, smack. Tell me about this thing. No, smack, smack. I mean, you're not really getting anywhere. So it ends up, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, agents are going to take the cultists out because they can't just let them walk away from this. But if you bring Project Praise into the mix, then you can bring them to them. Hey, look, this guy needs some help. Why don't you guys uh, see what you can do with him? And then, you know, later on down the line, you come back and talk to them, interview them. Maybe they can help you out then uh, get more information about the culture fighting. My concern is that I think most uh, of the Delta Green players that I've encountered basically take the view that once someone joins a cult, they're totally unsalvageable, and every word that comes out of their mouth is a mythos threat, so the only solution is to roll firearms. Right, uh, don't let the wizard speak. Don't let the wizard speak, and anyone could be a wizard, so just kill everybody. And I really don't like that attitude, and I... I'm trying harder to fight against it with the stuff that I write, but it's can be very difficult because if players commit to not caring about acts of murder and their death of the violence, then you're basically reduced to just like in character law enforcement consequences as a way of curbing that behavior. So I want to see, I want, I want you guys to tell me how this scenario can help me in this scenario. This group can help me solve that specific problem because when, when I hear that the players have an option to like turn people over to this group or to get this group involved to, to deprogram people, I think most players are going to think, okay, so that's that's a way for the cultists to just recruit more people. Because one of the things it says in the in the, the group text is that the method of deprogramming is to get all the family members to come and listen to the cultist. I guess it's assuming that your family isn't also in the cult. Well, based on Delta Green's mission, that's essentially just giving them a platform to increase their circulation. Yeah, I mean, I think the agents go straight to the firearms or the black site uh, solution because that's what they know. So they're just going to provide an alternative. I, mean, I think if you were dealing with something that was like an info hazard or where there was, you know, ritual magic and stuff, maybe this might not be the ideal one. But if you have, you know, you picked up somebody on the outskirts of a cult or uh, a, a newish recruit or something, knowing that you have a place you might be able to dump them is is interesting. And I, I kind of like the fact that, you know, as written... Project Praise really isn't involved in the, in the mythos. So you can't just dump this, you know, cultist on them and then out of nowhere, they're going to wonder who you are. So in a longer campaign where you interact with these guys a few times, you could turn someone on Project Praise and kind of get redeemed to Delta Green a little bit. And then they could kind of help deprogram the, the more dangerous ones, you know, in a, in a more safe fashion. So it could be a little more of like a two-way 
kind of connection, perhaps. I just think it provides uh, alternatives, and, and, and you know, players don't always have to take them, but I like to make sure they're provided with alternatives. And then when they take the easy way out, at least I can say, well, you had options. I think that the way that you make this group more attractive to players is to make it better at extracting information and building profiles of of cults. So if I if I turn someone over to these people, these guys are cult experts. So they're going to learn more about the doctrine than I would by just rolling persuade over and over again to interrogate the person. I think there needs to be more of a carrot in order to encourage players to actually interact with these guys. And the idea that you could get actual useful information instead of just salvaging an NPC that you might not even care about is, I think, a big boost. Because these characters are supposed to be experts of this stuff. So for them to be able to tell you what the cult's doctrine is, what's their master plan, what do they believe, and, you know, what's their modus operandi, you know, maybe what weapons do they use, etc., or, you know, do they believe they have this power? Is there a creature that they think exists, a clever spell? Having these guys on hand to help you collate that information would go a long way towards making them something the players would actually want to use. And I, again, there's, again, this isn't everyone, but a lot of people that I, I know play this game, like save the life of a cultist is not something that's going to motivate them. Dang, now you make me want to make uh, some sort of like a social worker agent that does want to do that, or maybe someone that works for project praise. And I think that part of, part of using an organization like this um, is that, it's also incumbent on the person running the game to not just make it a uh, just a, a fuck you. Because if if you're introduced to this idea, hey, you don't have to mulch everybody, you can salvage, you know, some people, you can gain useful information instead of just killing all the prisoners and so on. And then you immediately turn around and say, Well, fuck you for trusting that, you know, you could solve anything without violence, then uh, if every present the players get has a box of live hornets inside, they're eventually gonna stop opening the presents. And that makes them very hard to run the game for. Yeah, I, I think that's good advice for handlers for everything. Don't be an intentional asshole to your players. It's the mimic trap, you know. Every once in a while, it's okay to put a mimic in a dungeon. But if every dungeon has a mimic, then nah, nobody's going to open the chest. Or they're just going to start stabbing the chest or burning with a fireball or whatever. Yeah, and and again, I mean, you could you can introduce this in a few ways. You could have, you know, just some information during the briefing, you know, Delta Green could say, hey, this came in from a different, you know, from this group, Project Praise, you know, they're, they're not even friendly as we just kind of, you know, we got into the system and found this information out. And that's why we're sending you in. And then that could slowly kind of build a rapport or you could even make it a condition, you know, hey, you know, somebody pretty important got brought into this cult and we need, we need to get them out alive so we can, you know, make sure that they didn't compromise certain things or make sure that they, you know, need to know what they learn and the best place that you program them is here. So, you know, you could you could work it into the scenario and make it one of the central conceits. Or again, it's, what's nice about this is that it does serve as kind of a, a window dressing. Like it's a pretty realistic, you know, it's not uh, it's not crazy wild out there. This feels pretty realistic. So it can just add some milieu to the game world. Any other thoughts about Project Brace? Uh They think that it's a, the one the one thing that I know was going to be in there but got cut for um uh time and for not being able to to finish it to satisfaction was there was originally supposed to be a suite of deconverted npc cultists which i thought would have been super cool but um the guy in not including them was following some advice that i'd given earlier because people were upset that their contest entries weren't where they wanted them to be. And I said that you should narrow your project scope. And if there's stuff that's not working, rather than wasting time that trying to finish it and then ending up with an unfinished entry, just cut it and focus on the stuff that you know is going to be good. 
bunch of people are going to take some of the feedback advice and try and rework their things, right? Uh, I haven't heard any specific people doing that, but I know it uh, it is an option, and hopefully people take it. So the other third place. Yeah, so the other one is Throughline News by Michael Fox. So this is you know where Project Praise was. I guess you could use Project Praise as an antagonist if you wanted them to be kind of foiling the agent's uh, designs, which actually is an interesting way to think about it. Um, Throughline News would be tough to make into an ally. They are written as an antagonist. Um, they're a social media website news organization um, that is very you know better than the average bear uh, with algorithms and with you know on the front side rather with algorithms and figuring out what kind of news you want like targeted news for you Um, and obviously as you get deeper into the idea there's obviously some some unnatural behind it i think you could use it as a as an ally delta green has canonically according to the books at least a um, the program has a vast disinformation apparatus that it uses to suppress knowledge of the unnatural and the tools presented by uh, Thoughtline News through line. are almost tailor-made for Delta Green trying to subvert and destroy people it doesn't like, which is one of the things that the organization spends a lot of time doing. And the fact that it drives them insane and causes them to kill is either something that the program wouldn't realize until it was too late or something that they wouldn't care about because they're not very nice people. And that's part of the program that most players don't really get to interact with because there's a, there isn't really much of a game there. Is that you just you just point this thing at the guy you want to go crazy and then they actually go crazy. Um, but it, you're right; it's a it's definitely in the mythos or in the lore rather, uh, and in the canon. So that's something I hadn't even considered. So the the idea here uh, is that as as this news becomes increasingly tailored to you, um, and as, as you keep getting obsessed and reading it, it kind of saps you and eventually could cause you to do. Uh, bad things. But you just get caught in an echo chamber until you go nuts. Yeah, which, which actually that's you know that's totally unrealistic and that it would never happen. So that's why it's really yeah, hard for me to ground myself with this. Uh, <laughs> oh god, this is a little close to reality. Uh, it's pretty unsettling. Yeah, I think that interactivity is um, a difficult part of this scenario, and I've noticed in the NP, I'm noticing now in the NPC section, it's set up to provide players an avenue to investigate without going through the actual. Uh, cases themselves of people going crazy and doing bad stuff because of the the bad shit posts that they read on the internet. It's specifically set up for a for these NPCs to act out in ways that catch Delta Green's attention, rather than trying to investigate what are essentially a series of lone wolf attacks linked only through a black box. I think this could be an interesting, you know, especially if you kind of spun it as uh, have players start investigating the. Sorry, I'll start that again. So it's. The way it's written, uh, as you just mentioned, it's, it's really about investigating the, the people. But I think if you wanted to stretch this out into like a campaign or, or wanted to really play with this, you could have your agents investigating the different attacks and slowly start to realize that there's some sort of a connection and then tracing it back. Because once they've traced it back, I think it's, I mean, once they know that this organization is causing it somehow, I think it's a pretty, I don't want to say a simple solve, but I mean, it's, once you've got a target, it's, it's easy to knock the door down and figure out what's going on, I think. But getting to there, I think it'd be the fun part. This is this this article based group has something that the Delta Green Handlers Guide also has where it talks about um, Infowars and various conspiracies about the you know Majestic and the FBI and the NSA and so on in the world of Delta Green where all that stuff is literally true like in the world where every deranged fantasy of every Infowars poster has a good chance of being accurate 
like like here I'll, I'll give you an example um one of the character one of the npcs is a guy who read all the bad through line posts and then went and shot up a delta green facility because he thought that the usa was hiding the existence of aliens yeah which is a pretty fun turn on his head trope yeah he was literally correct in the delta green world he was almost reading straight out of the handler's guide when he did that <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I I do I, I do want to call out a kind of a funny thing in the credits. He meant he mentions you know thank God somebody helped him proofread. Uh, obviously, he ran this as a scenario. The the writer did, the author did. And so he said you know playtesters, agents, you know Eric, Sarah, Mike, and Katie. Thanks for burning down a building again. So I guess uh, it's it's not just a funny call and response or things your players do. It is a lot more common. I dislike that the whole organization is secretly a puppet of Nerlathotep. Because I don't like Narnathep, I think that he's um, often inserted into scenarios as a shortcut to like actually thinking about who you know who's responsible for this thing or how can I create an interesting villain or it's like, eh, just a mask Narnathep. But I like that this scenario works just fine without him. Like you can you can run this just as easily by just saying they discovered a really good algorithm themselves because part of the original themes of theming of the mythos and one that I think gets lost and, and should be more common is that we're not going to be destroyed by, you know, monsters and ancient creatures and alien gods. We're going to be destroyed because we're going to very quickly discover things that make it impossible for us to, to live with ourselves. Like the story of Herbert West or from beyond, those are stories about just ordinary dudes who didn't need inspiration from the devil or from Cthulhu or whoever to create bad things. They just use their big brains to find stuff that would destroy civilization. Because that's it, it's, it's actually a much more direct pipeline to the original theming of the mythos, which was not that alien gods are actually real, but that increasing knowledge made the universe seem like a very hostile place and would ultimately prove to be incompatible with human flourishing. So I, I like the fact that if you if you toss toss the mythos out the window and just make it an algorithm, then it would be a lot easier to basically flip these guys from a, an enemy to a, a Delta Green kind of maybe not ally but a tool, you know? Because if they're Delta Green is unlikely to straight up utilize an, an elder uh, a mask of uh but they are pretty likely, I think, to use. Uh, you know, a hypergeometric algorithm that they can turn on people they don't they don't like. So you could have a fun little time there. Narlathotep, Narlatho, Yarlatho, Tep. I don't know. I'm awful at pronouncing this. Yeah, this this needs to be a thing. I need you to try and pronounce every. I, I can't, the only one. No, I can no, 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 no. This is now podcast branding, and you have to do it. But it's not like I do it intentionally. I don't. No. That's a hard word to do. No, this is and this is a thing. remember, we're gonna have read or like seen any movies that I'm so I've never heard them in the wild. I'm going to go out of my way to like put Lovecraft words into all our things that I want you to read just so we can try and <laughs> stumble through them. That's good. It's good branding. We need, we need branding. Anything else on the through line? Yeah. Oh, how did you guys feel about the NPCs? Uh, I think, I mean, in general, uh, well, one, I really like having them in a write up because it gives you something to grab in, in a, in a pinch. Um, I'm not very critical of NPCs. You know, do do they have stats? Yeah, if yes, then they're great. You know, do they have a motivation? Great. That's really all I need. Um, these are probably you know probably above average because they're they have a little more right up right up to them. But even if it was just like co-founder, some stats. You know, he's a he's a mess and he never tucks his shirt in. That would be enough for me to run with it. I think. I really like the one uh, the the chief technology officer who's just digging into the algorithm and he's trying to understand it. And it'd be really fun 
to have him go through with the uh, uh, introduce the consciousness expansion spell to him, just to see him try and uh, try and solve that equation and, and poof away. Maybe that's uh, the algorithm in question here could be tied to that spell. Which uh, brings up another thing about the group contest I really like is that there's a lot of ideas that kind of lie uh, adjacent to different things that you already might be familiar with with Delta Green. Uh, the contest is really good for you know sparking ideas and sparking uh, little creations for you to throw together. It's something I appreciate about this contest and all the contests we do. Really, the set pieces one is pretty dope. This one's pretty dope. So since Melon, uh, well. Melody did most of the writing. I did most of the thinking um, of the the third place uh, kind of ineligible entry. Jake, can you cue it up for our listeners? Kevin's an idea guy. I, yes. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I can author ideas all day. Getting them to be finished on paper is the hard part. Kevin, that's that's not a that's not a compliment. Well, I took it as a compliment, so I'm going to live that way. All right, all right. So check it out. This entry. Have you ever had? A, a scenario or another situation in Delta Green that you really wanted uh, players to learn some magic, but you can't just come out and be like, hey, players, here's the magic spell, the uh, GM hand wave, and now you know it. What if there were a way for uh, players to engage in some good old-fashioned Call of Cthulhu-style research? So, uh, an official Delta Green scenario that tells you to take two weeks off and go research something. Exactly. Uh, so the Orn Library, as y'all's injury, it was the Miskatonic University Library, comes with a suite of NPCs, including the ghost case officer that we've alluded to in other episodes. Kevin, why don't you tell them about the ghost case officer, since that was one of your uh, ideas. Yeah, that's where this all started. Uh, and he's not, I mean, I guess first let's define ghost. And then two hours later. So, I mean, he's a ghost in name only. He's a ghost um, in name and in other features as well. He's more of like, he was, he's, he was originally designed as more of like a Star Wars hologram. Like, that's the, the onus of him. But, I mean, go, a ghost is fine, I, as I nitpick Sith, Sith holocrons are just spicy ghosts. Right, yeah. Um, I did a scenario called There's Golden Witch Hill. That one's actually done. One of my few finished scenarios. Um, I wrote that just after. That doesn't matter. Uh, and in it, I wanted uh, I wanted the players to get briefed, but I didn't want to just have you know you meet up at a TSA you know conference room with your hand with your case officer and he gives some stuff and off you go. So I thought, what if uh, what if this thing had been happening? And I'll, I'll speak in generalities here, but we'll link the scenario in the show notes. What if this bad thing had been happening you know every eighty years or so? And the first person to stop it was back in the old days when was the original head of of the Yorn collection at Miskatonic University, uh, Henry Armitage. Um, and he knew, what if when he stopped it the first time, he knew it was going to keep coming back. So he built a system in place where he would essentially magically send himself, send a, a version of himself forward or, or hold it in time until such time as it would realize that this thing was going to come back, find a group of agents, put them together and make it happen. Um, so th- that was the idea. Um, just thought it was a little more interesting. The first time I ran it, um, uh, I didn't present the well. The two things went head to head. I didn't present it in as good a way as, as it is written in the final version of the scenario. And Melon Brad is a paranoid, insane person who wants to shoot people in the middle of a crowded. I didn't shoot rest, any rest person. Spot. There was no person who I discharged a firearm at. <laughs> that was a fucking Christ. ghost, and ghosts deserve what they fucking get, which is to be sucked up with proton packs and stuffed in a washing machine. 
You know, Melon, for such a smart person, you'd think you'd realize that ghosts are immune to bullets. He was invisible on phone, and that means he's a fucking Mego. So I discharged my firearm, and I had a 50% chance of hitting him. Yeah, but so, it turns out I had a 0% chance because he's a goddamn ghost, and he's still expecting me to follow his orders nonetheless, which he really shouldn't have, because it turns out when Delta Green was founded, it was founded on the idea that anyone who wants to live forever and use magic to do so is a bad person. So that was the onus. Um of the Miskatonic, uh, you know, the Orn Library, the Orn Special Collection. Um, and then I had some very general notes, and I talked to Malibred about it a little bit, and then he kept giving me feedback on it. And I said, look, why don't you, you obviously have a, a direction you want to run with this. Uh, I've set the stage. Why don't you just write it? And he did. No, that's bullshit. He, I didn't even wait for you to say that. I did myself just because I, I was like, I'm not going to wait for Kevin to do this. Cause, and then I presented you with the, like, two-thirds finished document, and you were like, all right, um, you put a parody of yourself in there. You put a parody of me in there. We put a parody of Jake in there, and then we can finish this thing. That's good. Yeah. Fundamentally, the use of Orn Library is to communicate information that you otherwise do not have a good mechanical way to deposit. So oftentimes, one of the difficult parts of Delta Green scenarios is thinking, uh, how do I get the players introduced to this? Because oftentimes, they begin by just wandering around looking for plot elements that they can latch onto. And so if you want to skip all that shit and just get people right to the fun stuff, like to the parts of the investigation where they actually get to make decisions and find clues and so on, you can say, well, fuck it. This ghost 100 years ago knew this was going to happen, and he prepared this recording of his own personality to appear and give a descriptive text and say, you know, here's a mystery to solve. But you can't just, you know, and the question is, well, why doesn't the ghost just tell you everything? Because the ghost is a basically just a programmed loop with a small amount of knowledge because they didn't really understand data science all that well in the 1920s and 30s. And so they couldn't store that much information in the whole, in the, the ghost projection. So he only knows a couple of key facts and that's about it. How many, uh, how many megabytes of memory do the ghost? Uh, they would have? probably measure the ghost's memory in baud, which is the number of characters that um, it can transmit at a specific rate, because that, I think that was what measurement um, they would have for, no, 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 because that, um, I, I'm, I'm not giving the, the 30s people enough credit because that was back when um, uh, I want to say Polish Cypher Bureau by the 30s had already built the first mechanical computers. All right. Uh, so anyway, let's steer back to uh, anything else we want to say on, on, on the Orn library. Um, I'm surprised it did so well and I'm glad it did so well. I looked at it as more of like a you know mythos adjacent sort of thing that people could, could pick up, but I think people like the idea so that makes you feel good. I appreciate the collection of books that you guys put in there which i'm pretty sure that's mostly melon's work there yep and i also like the uh section at the end where you include different hooks for working with them or working against them where each of the uh the four uh, primary npcs uh faults come to play and they act out and agents have to uh, intervene I think it's pretty good. Uh, it's got that that style that we're seeing now in the early drafts of the Labyrinth of uh, what if they were a potential ally, what if they were a potential enemy. And that's a good way to go about it, I think, with any group because you're never going to predict how your agents are going to react to people. They might just pull out a gun and start shooting the case officer. I think that that's true. Case officer happened. Okay. Um, the, other, the other thing about this is that it is partially designed to give players with i think we've talked about this at the start when you said it was like call of cthulhu style 
um, research. Uh, Delta Green has a setting conceit that makes it very hard for anthropologists and historians and so on to find useful information. And the setting conceit is that like Delta Green has gone out and deliberately scoured the world of all useful information about the mythos. And to the, the degree that they've done that, obviously you're not constrained by canon, but there's definitely a different attitude towards that stuff. There's an attitude in a lot of the stuff that the most you're going to find is just scraps of information that are not very useful to you. You might learn that, oh, it's connected to Sethogla, lose one sand, but you don't learn, you know, how does that help you? So the idea with putting a library in here that you, the player, can go into with your anthropology skill or your occult skill or whatever and find information is that it's supposed to give those characters more of a, a role in the story beyond just um, occasionally delivering fluff and flavor text. I could see someone spinning like a, a home scene here. I see a home scene for sure. I also, right now, one of the only ways if you if you secure a dangerous mythos text on an operation, you know, can't, canonically, one of the only ways to deal with that, aside from just putting it in a green box and letting it molder away, is to call Coral Nomad, who are kind of a Mary Sue that can just whisk it away. So it could be interesting to have your case officer say, all right, you know, bring it here, you know, bring it to this library and, you know, officially hand it over and it would be a little, little less deus ex machina than a whisper helicopter coming in and just taking it away. You assume I'm ever giving up my tomes. I think we've well established in the canon of this podcast that uh, you were the outlier of Delta Green players. I don't think so. I think that there's lots of people who are going to say when the when the program says, all right, turn over all the fun stuff so that we can lock it away away from you. They'll say, what fun stuff? I never saw nothing, boss. Well, that's the, the beauty of the Oran libraries. You could lock it away, but still study it. Yeah, that's that's the other fun part is that it can be, it can like you can you can add to the repository by turning in stuff that you find, and there's even there's like NPCs that'll uh, because now the, the players aren't always going to have research skills. One of the other problems with tomes is that tomes are usually in languages the players don't speak, and on one hand, it, that's a way of making languages skills useful. On the other hand, the odds of you having the correct language are not always so great, and so in games you can solve that by you know i'll go to university and find someone who speaks gothic or polish or whatever or, or urdu and give them the secret text and have them translate it but if you don't want to go through all that you know i'll make up an npc and do all the infrastructure if you want one ready made uh with a whole you know lore behind it that's what this character can do for you uh this character at the orn library so that's another way you can use it but uh, to, to go down this route would just be to read out all of the descriptive texts, which I'm not going to do because that's what the scenario text is for. Yeah, so check it out in the link below and then smash the thumbs up and then ring the bell and hit the holler horn. All right, so uh, second place winner for real was the one it was a group called the Storm Chasers by Lithobreaker. And this is actually the first one that I read uh, and I really liked it. Um, maybe one of my personal favorites. Uh, this is about a group of people uh, who've made their living uh, in the construction industry and they uh, have a charity that goes around after tornadoes and other disasters rebuilding homes um, you know, for, for people who need it, which is a very noble cause. Unfortunately, what they do is they use these homes to sap the willpower of the new, new owners to power uh, a wizard, which I think is a very interesting kind of slow burn investigatory route and kind of creepy. So I like it. It is. Uh, so I, I was... When, when I was reading over the initial draft, I thought this is really good, but, you know, did the, does the house do anything? You know, you know how can how can the players find out that the houses are fucked up? And it was like, oh, that's that's great. And I was like, you know, then in um, a scenario called New Age, 
uh, for the original Delta Green, there's a cult that is basically just a giant magic power laundering operation where you like pray in front of a, jer- a J.O. crystal and it saps your willpower. Something I, that, that I think is important to note here is we've mentioned it three times, I think three out of four scenarios and probably the fourth scenario, we just didn't mention it. Uh, these were made better by collaboration. You know, one person either had the idea or did the writing or wrote everything and then had other people look at it and people notice things. And I've, I've found that rarely when I share the work I write, the work I do with other people uh, in this, especially in the podcast group or, or at the Reddit, uh, you know, rarely does it make it worse. Because if they're going to make it worse, I'll just ignore them. But it almost always makes it better. So uh, I, I, I just wanted to call out a little bit of advice to, to people out there who are writing stuff or thinking about writing stuff. Get it to a point where it's not just word vomit. Like you've edited it a little bit and then let someone else look at it and then crowdsource it from there. There's no reason to keep it all close to the vest. I also want to note that this group broke some writer's block I was having on a scenario, which me and Litho Breaker still have to talk about it, but I'm probably just going to wholesale tack onto this as a Storm Chasers scenario. Um, and I think we've talked about it on the podcast, or maybe we talked about inventing it, but we had the idea, uh, it might have been Heron and, and I, or Heron, Jake, and I, for a scenario involving all media specialists called Breaking News. Um, and I wrote it, and, and the, the bad thing was really stupid, um, but this gives a really cool bad thing that media specialists could tack onto. So I think it's going to be a cool collaboration. I don't think your thing was that bad. I just think it was lacking in the interactivity department. Yeah, well, you're, you're right. Yeah, I could have I could have kept working on it, but I found this now, and I think this works better. So that'll be fun. So that speaks again to my point about collaboration, and I'll stop talking about collaboration now. I think one thing that would have made this one a bit easier to use would be more detail on the actual like infrastructure of okay, you know what what is it in the house that makes that that does like the willpower sapping? How does it work? You know, do they have to like drive by and like pick up the Jo crystals? Uh, basically stuff that would add more connections because as it is like finding the fucked up house is um, it's difficult to tell what it's actually doing because you can tell that you can that the, the, the two clues are that the houses are all drafty and they incorporate geometry that ultimately ultimately saps willpower and transfers it but uh, especially that second one that's a difficult one to track you can figure out who built the house and that's a good in but I think something a bit more substantial in terms of the that connection there would be appreciated you could ramp up with Maybe not with time, but with uh, volume of willpower being sapped, more manifesta- manifestations. Uh, that's a cool idea, yeah. The Shane Ivy scenario, Jack Frost, is one of the only Delta Green scenarios I know that has uh, the Ithaca in it. And uh, like, Alabama, like it's dark, a, but it's really gorgeous. No, no. So Jack Frost is a, a big winter storm comes to Alabama, yeah, a little sleepy town in Alabama, and uh, like freezes everyone out. Uh, you could connect that to this in that Alabama is also in the new tornado alley. So maybe there was a bunch of these shelters that had been put in place already and uh, something fucked up and Ithaca came to town. Does Jack Frost store power by means of a JF crystal? A JF crystal. It's good. Also another scenario, um, you said the only one, but the other one is uh, Cold Dead Hand that has oh, the yeah. walker waste in it. Right. Isn't that a... Uh, Russian uh, GRUSVA. Yeah, though? that's SVH. I think it's, I think it's the only published SV8 scenario. Okay, yeah, all, no. the other, all the other SV8 scenarios they just tell you about, but don't actually write down for you. Oh, all the other SV8 scenarios is written by me. <laughs> that's also true. This article, um, I should have said this when I was looking at it. It's a missed opportunity to talk about a big problem that we have in the U.S., which is that 
generally when like the disaster infrastructure gives people like if your if your home gets fucked up and you get money by virtue of our disaster preparedness infrastructure or whatever oh yeah that money is usually to rebuild on site and not to relocate so you can get paid by the government to just have your house flood over and over again and you can't fucking sell it because it's a massive flood risk so you trap there just endlessly being disastered and then paying to rebuild over and over again out of the taxpayers on the taxpayers dime and you know if they would just say here's some money to go fucking buy a house somewhere else we could get out of this trap but i also thought that those funds couldn't be used to improve upon your situation they could only be used to get back to like the level you're at before right right because the government i mean it's it's one of those things where they they like like because it because they were worried that if you let it be improved, it's like oh you know I'll just build a fucking back deck with my with my FEMA money or whatever. They were worried that people were gonna walk around with it, so they put in these rules. But you know it's it's uh, it's like anything where there's unintended consequences. It's it's also the the max payout you're gonna get from FEMA as of this recording, um, and that's if you max out everywhere possible, which is very hard. It's like thirty grand ish, and that's not enough. For which is nothing. Could get another get another fucking mobile home. Yeah, no one is improving the situation for thirty grand. And additionally, um, isn't the program now millions of dollars in debt because it this because it turns out that these places are going to get disastered over and over again due to their geographic location? Yeah, but I mean, government debt is not like regular debt, and we don't. I, re- I mean, I can talk about this at length, but I'm not going to do it on this podcast. Damn right, you're not. This is the green box. The green that we're talking about here is economics. Right. Um, I can't believe I forgot about this. Um, he what Litherbaker included in an appendix was a, a short section on a, a couple National Weather Service professions, and he styled it the same way they do in uh, Complex or the Handlers or the Handlers Guide. Or it's pretty dope. He's, yeah, uh, but it was nice. It's, it's a quick, quick little at a glance. Um, and if you aren't familiar with the National Weather Service, it would be a pain to try to like make your own. So I do like that he included these. Um, it's just another way to kind of add some reality to it, and that was that was cool. Um, I did send these to someone I work with uh, who I believe chuckled, but as it is currently hurricane season, he does not have time to officially comment. Yeah, Barry's coming for us right now. Yep. It's already raining in my house. All right, so that's Storm Chasers. Uh, any other thoughts? I talk about number one entry, I think. Yeah, so who wants to uh, give us a rundown on Project Big Wheel? Project Big Wheel is pretty straightforward in its concept. Project Big Wheel is a, a secret government program to use a drone that can cast magical spells and kill people in a super deniable fashion by doing so. And so from there, we get a write-up of this top secret base, the researchers, the the pilots slash operators, the administrative staff, the missions the drones have been on, the special forces team that supports the missions, a group of protesters who are uh, depending on um, oh, I get on the side. A group, a group of protesters who are upset about this top secret government murder project that is being built on their, uh, this is taking place on what they consider to be their ancestral land. A couple of opposition groups that are otherwise scheming against the top secret project because either because they want to steal it or because they want to destroy it, and a host of ways to involve the. Delta Green agents, your players, in the mess. And the thing that I absolutely love the most about this, besides all of this stuff that's very clearly designed to be played with, is that each character in the game is given three different options. 
they can be good, neutral, or evil. And they have with this, each one comes with a suite of options. So if they're evil, they either are a true believer in the mission of using wizard shit to kill America's enemies, or, you know, they're secretly devoted to Yig because their people are descended from slaves escaped from uh, Blue Lit Kenyan, or otherwise they are someone who will be uh, an opponent of the players. If they are neutral, they are someone who is not immediately hostile, but may prove to be an obstacle. They may need some extraordinary evidence to convince them to the program that they're operating on is a bad idea. They may be uh, profoundly psychologically damaged because one of the cool things that this, this article does is that it goes a bit into the psychological damage that happens to drone operators because people think of it as a very kind of cushy, almost boring position. You know, how, how traumatizing could it be to, you know, fly uh, a drone above XYZ and then nuke it from orbit? But the thing is about that is, I like, I meme a lot about, oh, you know, yeah, they just take out a take out an Afghani wedding. No big deal. It probably is actually a big deal to the people doing that. And the data supports, the data supports that. The data supports the idea that, that it is actually a profoundly disturbing experience to watch someone from space and or from space from from the air for you know six hours going about their daily life uh blast them wait for the ambulance to show up and then blast the ambulance because it's probably a terrorist ambulance because why else would it show up to a terrorist who you just killed it's the purest expression of the phrase from pirates of penzance which is that uh when constabulary duties to be done a policeman's lot is not a happy one referring to the idea that if you're doing your job right you are hunting and killing your enemies at a moment when they are going about their business and they are totally defenseless. There's two things. Uh, well, one, it's drone pilot, not operator. But that's uh, beside the point. One of the things oh, I really can love, you like about this. clarify the joke there for us? I don't get it. He's a, he's a drone operator and a drone pilot. Is there like a punchline to that? No, it's just a factual statement that I wanted to make a correction on because you, what you said was uh, wrong. Super serious. All right. Well. <laughs> All right. So one of the things I like about this, uh, and we kind of saw it with uh, Black Sat from Control Copy, is the mixing of magic and technology? Um, they they kind of they go into some some detail to explain that like the data for the hybrid geometric spell is uploaded to the drone, and the drone uses this targeting laser to cast the spell. That's a really neat mixing of the two, um, which I really appreciated because it kind of makes it feel kind of lived in. It's the kind of thing that um, the devs speak disparagingly of. Like when we heard that conversation about how, oh, you know, it was like a an EMP gun that was secretly like a ghoul's eyeball or whatever, and that was terrible. And I was thinking, actually, that sounds awesome. And look at that, it's awesome. The thing that this ties into that is that uh, I've seen some people refer to a bunch of Lovecraft stories as techno thrillers because uh, he was writing about like the bleeding edge of technology in his day back then. Right, like how the Kenyan used atom power and dematerialization, yeah. and they they were they had mastered like nuclear physics, so they could get um they they had atomic batteries for everything, and the reanimator was a scientific formula to bring back the dead. Um, there's the the steamship, which was like the finest, largest piece of like sailing equipment at the time, is what used to knock Cthulhu's head off, or you know, knock him out, whatever, just put him back to sleep. In uh. He's not dead, but dreaming. The biggest, the biggest, the biggest thing was in um, the shunned house. Not only did they bring flamethrowers to try and kill the monster, and you know, guns and stuff, and big barrels of acid, but they bring something called a crooks tube, which is basically a big X-ray gun. Because they're like, if we got to bust some ghosts, we're gonna bust some ghosts because ghosts fucking hate X-rays. Uh, one of the other things 
I mean, that was a legitimate Cthulhu reference. And, like, nobody called me out on it. That was good. Yeah, I'm not yeah, going to. It, it was yeah. a solid one. I'm proud um, of you. Do you want a cookie? I mean, you've exhausted. I do want a cookie. Do you have some? Uh, so, one of the other things I think is neat about this is that uh, Melanie mentioned in the beginning that this is a government conspiracy, um, but it's, a, it's different than Delta Green. So, Delta Green doesn't necessarily have control. Uh, specifically, as written, Delta Green is not controlling Big Wheel, but they might want control. So, your mission might be to go kind of get the organization. Get, yeah, get Big Wheel under, under the auspices of Delta Green. But this is one of the few, uh, one of the few places where you just you can't badge your way in because military secu- military security at a very high profile military base. Like if if you show up with a badge, you're gonna have to have called ahead, sent in your paperwork. They're gonna know who you are. They're gonna have background checked you. Like you're not gonna just badge your way into this compound, which is a kind of a fun way to stop that typical agent tactic. But Kevin, I'd pass my persuade check. They think I'm an FBI agent. Look, uh, I remember. Well, so one, I could talk about all the fun red teaming people have done where they've actually, you know, done, you know, broken into military bases, but let's leave that for another discussion. I think if somebody passed their persuade check, I'd have the guard let them in and then trap them in the man trap and then let the, let the interrogators have their way with them. You say that, but you, you say interrogated. So you presuppose that players will ever surrender. That's why I mean, you put them in a man trap. Surrender or die. Well, I mean, they'd have to shoot themselves and each other for death to be an option. Um, so you're talking about infiltrating the organization to that end, uh, obtuse agent obtuse, the only known name of the author here, uh, did include several uh, vulnerabilities or ends for like making contact with some of the people in the group, like the major that leads the project and a couple of uh, like the the spotter lieutenant. Um, but like the hottest, spiciest take from this is that you could just totally go in and bang the major's wife. Yes. And make him, or not, like, <laughs> not just the major's wife, but if you want to get the scientist away from her escorts, you can totally just pick her up at a bar because she loves to, to bang dudes like 20 years younger than herself. Which is great. Uh, it's a way for, you know, less... Uh, I mean, it, it's just a way to introduce more... Uh, unique role-playing elements into this, I think, uh, make things a lot more personal. So I'd like to, though, the one thing I don't think was included, um, I know we people mentioned it in reading the, giving Fit some feedback, um, is once Big Wheel gets pulled into Delta, into Delta Green, you know, the inevitable happens uh, either through, just the, the inevitable inevitable happens. Um, I think it'd be cool to have a way on the for agents on the ground to call in either this drone or a similar hypergeometric weapon uh, as like you know, uh, fire support almost. Uh, so that'd be a cool thing to have in there. Well, the mechanism given for that the special forces team uses is that um, they actually get to carry a laser designator that they use to spot targets for it, especially if it doesn't have line of sight by itself. So not only can it zap people from space, it can zap people from space without direct line of sight if the SEAL team on the ground has the laser designator. So that so I would you could one thing you could do is you could just pull out all those guys from the scenario and replace that with a team of player characters whose mission is go right. to go to this place in area we're not supposed to be paint this target yeah paint this target and then do not go inside the building do not you know confirm oh no 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 even better make them go in and confirm the kill no yeah make them see They're, the effects no, of what they don't did go leave That's forensic true. evidence all over the goddamn because the whole point of like doing this with black ops is that you're really not supposed to be wherever you're doing it so you know i'm not gonna go like admit that i was in the don boss or in uh you know the dmz or in outer mongolia it's a uh, part of the uh, text here says that 
sometimes the the spotter teams accidentally did observe and confirm the kills and it drove some of them crazy uh because they had the realization that they put like a fire a fire vampire inside of one of the isis vehicles or something and it just like roasted everyone alive and they saw that in this case uh one of the reasons why it causes uh severe mental trauma and stress and so on is not just that the drone operators are roasting people sometimes literally pilots it wasn't deliberate <laughs> but now that you said it it's retroactively deliberate oh my gosh uh, the the drone guys are spending their own without realizing it they're spending their own um willpower and power to operate the spells and losing sand as a result but they don't know it because they uh are not cleared for that knowledge and so sometimes they have like a whole team of, of people operating the operating one of them or piloting one of them, depending on whether you trust Kevin, a a legitimate drone pilot. Yes. So they have they have to have a whole team of people because the spell requires a lot of willpower, and if only one person did it, then it would they would probably pass out. Just give them some uppers. Uppers don't restore willpower, do they? They just stay well, off they exhaustion. They stop you from passing out. I mean, mm, this they can they can stop you from passing out, but they can't reverse the effects of, of zero willpower. They can only reverse the effects yeah, of exhaustion correct. because Delta Green has two separate tracks: one for taking a nap and one for being tired. <laughs> so yeah, so this is a neat uh, a, a neat entry in that it gives you something fun to play with, gives you a cool scenario seed. This could either be a one shot, you know, take down the take them down or bring them into the fold, or it could be a longer campaign. You know, figuring out like you know, big wheel could be being used on American soil, and you're you know tracking down reports of fire vampires, and then you figure out what's happening and have to backtrack it to the to the Air Force base. That can be pretty. Wait, wait, I got, I got another one. I got another one. Um, so Kevin, uh, there are the SEAL team, the um, the special operators, if you will, that use the target laser. Would they be drone operators? No, they're regular operators. Really? Yes. Regular operators, and yet they use a laser designator that allows a drone to cast magic spells on a target you know uh there's like specific uh specific verbiage in the hypergeometry section where they refer to uh the person casting the spell as the ritual operator yes yeah so ritual these, pilot. Are, these are the drone the drone ritual operator the uh, drone ritual pilot drone pilot ritual i don't know jake is jake is onto something here I do. I do take umbrage uh, that they require in the write-up. He requires pilot drone. Uh, it really, it really should be pilot aircraft. But that's a minor, uh, a minor nitpick. I mean, I mean, I, I ordinarily would make fun of you for like Murray Gelmaning yourself on this, but I actually agree with you here because I think the pilot skills should be more general in general. Yeah, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't take somebody who you wouldn't make somebody have pilot F fourteen. You know, have them not able to fly an F eighteen. It's, it's pilot planes or helicopters. And drones are just planes, or except for the drones that are helicopters, which are just helicopters. Well, what about what about VTOLs? It depends. There's also drones that are submarines. Those are really cool. Uh, so, all right. Do any other big wheel thoughts? Actually, uh, Kevin, you and I have both got to talk about our entries. The only person who hasn't come to talk about his entry is Jake. Yeah, Jake, tell us about what you submitted. Uh, so, Sub Rosa is a mythos fighting organization founded uh, none by none other than Teddy Roosevelt. Um, so I wanted to do something with national parks. I wanted to do something with Loiger and, uh, the natural bridge between the two was the person who's responsible for founding and establishing, uh, protection protocols for national parks. And cause I'd read a biography about Teddy Roosevelt and he's just such a goddamn Mary Sue. Like if you look at like the list of titles that he has behind his name, 
it's a cowboy, businessman, lawyer, politician, uh, secretary of the Navy. Uh, the list goes on. There's a police, oh, a police chief. Uh, it was New York police chief. Yeah, I remember that. He was the one who got them to buy all those folding shotguns in that Forgotten Weapons episode. But his family was also plagued with like a bunch of health issues. So I just kind of uh, couch it up as uh, his his dad was like a lawyer cultist for a little while. And uh, when his dad turned on the lawyer stone, it cursed his entire bloodline. Uh, as a result of the cursed bloodline, you got Teddy Roosevelt's uh, naturally weak constitution that he overcomes by just sheer willpower. Uh, but anyways, about the organization, it is essentially just a way for you to have games set in different time periods. So, you know, the pre-20th century, I guess that's just the 19th century, the late 19th century, you could do Blackwell uh, Island Insane Asylum in New York, where the Lewiston was housed for a while. You could do moving the Stone out to the wilderness because that was their only way to like kind of control it. Um, and then I even had some stuff in there about like what a modern Teddy Roosevelt mythos organization looks like. And it's just people that keep an eye on the parks because that's where the lawyer stones are. And it's more like a containment policy. So they get a disease from uh, lawyers, right? Yeah. The, uh, Loigma. Loigma. Um, I do like this group. I like the NPCs that you put in there. They have a lot of personality. I think the one thing that might be missing is that um, I know that like long histories are not something that is always super used for the for the handler. For the handler, uh, I did like the one that you put in here. I think it's all the lore about the Snallygaster and shit. Super cool. Uh, I do think that if you're talking about Roosevelt's and them falling under the influence of evil forces, you got to talk about FDR and his brother Kermit because I think that both of them were rotten bastards. For comparison, um, Kermit Roosevelt is the guy responsible for the coup in Iran that put the Shah in power. Right. It's not just, just, you know, it wasn't like his only his idea, but he's not a great guy. And, you know, we're talking about like the Roosevelt's kind of swinging wildly between cultist, hero, uh, diseased victim of the lawyer's depredations and, you know, powerful Mary Sue. You know, you talk about the guy who from a wheelchair drafted the Japanese internment with an executive order. You talk about the guy who uh, overshadowed by his more successful sibling uh, overthrew the democratic elected government of Iran. You know, there's a, a bit more grist for the mill there. But yeah, the main thing that I dislike about lawyers is that they have so many, like, special abilities and powers that they need their own lookup table in the book. Like, there's just pages and pages of stuff there. And I think that it would benefit from a bit narrower of a focus where, like, you pick one or two abilities and you build a scenario about that. Yeah, I tried to include something similar in that. Um just how to break it down by scenes uh, in a national park, because I feel like that's like the most likely place you'd encounter a yeah. lawyer stone. Uh, so for those of you who have not read the handler book, um, a lawyer or lawyer, I don't actually don't know how it's said, but is a creature that is made of energy and lives inside of rocks and can send like energy pulses to make people depressed or suicidal or give them cancer or make them, uh, have a various other bad things happen to them. It can control the weather. It has a very, very long list of powers and there's not much you can do about it, which it's is 16. There's, there's 16. Like it's just a huge fat ass stat chunk. And that's just on like the stone form monster. Yeah. And then in addition to all that, they can also transform into a dinosaur and just bite you. Yeah. That's I was, I was about to ask. I said, I, I Googled gorgas. Oh, I Googled boy. those because I didn't know what they were. Uh, and I'm like, this doesn't sound like a rock. This is like a 
supposed to get a worm dinosaur thing. So, so loigers are, are everything in the kitchen sink, and it can make them like a single loiger is basically um, it goes beyond just being a scenario in and of itself, and ends up being I think a bit too much. So I appreciate that effort to try and narrow the scope because one of the problems with loigers is that they're not super interactive in their given state. Because if a rock underground is doing all kinds of bad things, what the fuck you want me to do about it? Yeah, most of the abilities are just things that will happen to the agents. It's less uh, less what what can you do to stop them. It's just more like, hey, can you survive this? So that kind of plays into the idea I had about it taking place in a national park. Yeah. Put some sort of like a survival aspect into it while you're, you're trying to find the source because it kind of plays into the thing about Delta Green just putting off the apocalypse for yeah. one more day. I, th- I think the tension is how do you create that feeling and that atmosphere while also being interactive enough to justify it being a game? Like, is there stuff that you can do in order All to... All you gotta do is wait wait for it to get super powerful, powerful enough to manifest into the dinosaur form and then blast it to hell so it goes back to the rocks and it's weak again. Alright. Uh, Kevin, did you have any opinions about this? I like I liked that the current the current form is just four people, so you could very easily see them finding something, finding an issue, either either a logo or, as you mentioned, they do monitor the national parks in general. So other issues, you know, Kinyan, uh, Ithaqua, whatever. Um, and <laughs> they could reach out to Delta Green to say, hey, we need some firepower to back up for this. So that could be a fun way to kind of play with them. Um, it could also be kind of fun to be a... Uh, play like a park ranger who got recruited in as like a sub rosa friendly almost and then kind of slide sideways into delta green uh that could be a neat kind of aspect uh, i could also see them if you wanted to spin them as an antagonist um if you're doing shit on national park grounds and you're trying to you know cover up a delta green operation they could be nosing around they, they might they might fuck up and think that the agents are cultists or something yeah like that could be an antagonist that you don't just want to gun down because like they they do good work but like it's like just go away now because we're trying to cover this up so you can't just shoot them if the agents are trying to take the stone out of the park they'll be like put that thing back where it came from or so help me take only pictures leave only footprints that is the last thing that i want to say about it uh there's a story that my dad used to tell me about um his father they took a family trip to the petrified forest national park and this was back in the 70s and 80s where they were having this huge problem of people taking those stones out and it was like a felony uh, they were like pulling tourist cars over at the park exits and being like, all right, everybody out. And they'd search like people's cars for the the, the petrified forest. And that just totally screamed like a uh, sub Rosa thing to me. So I put it in there. That's good. So uh, to wrap, to wrap up this discussion, we can talk about the way that we did uh, voting and the way that we did voting for this contest is that we developed a set of criteria beforehand. Um, it was a combination of crowdsourcing and just basically fiat that we wordsmithed a a set of of things that you'd be judged on on a numeric scale so you know how interactive is it how original is it to to give some wiggle room we said like it doesn't have to be you know like completely off the wall like you can use established elements but it should be in a novel way and not just recycling an existing element so don't just make delta green but make all the names polish or something we did that and then we also had a free response box that where you were allowed to just write why you voted the way you did but also just other thoughts that you had and uh, i found that to be immensely helpful and both both being able to to justify my decisions and rating things, but also hearing what people had to say about my content was super useful. Because one of the things that people have said, I think, about the shotgun contest in the past is that 
it does not give them enough feedback because if you're not in the top three or top five or whatever, you don't even know where you stand and how people felt about you. Uh, a small number of us are lucky enough to actually be able to play test our scenarios and that's why, the way we get feedback. But uh, this type of free response, I think was super useful. We did, we, we tested it previously with the set piece contest and I think that it worked really well here. Although um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop and let other people talk. Yeah, I was going to use some of the feedback that I was given to uh, rearrange and redo some of the things, add a couple of things and flesh it out a little bit more to be a more complete product. I legitimately do believe that um, when everybody works together, that uh, like Kevin mentioned earlier, you can kind of get rid of all the stuff that you don't think is useful and uh, and only be enhanced by uh, the help of others. Which in itself is kind of uh, it's kind of Lovecraftian because when you look at his writings and uh, all the other authors of the time, they were just basically like pen pals writing back and forth about each other's stories and riffing off of each other. Yeah, the downside of this mechanism is that for each submission, you were asked to rate five other submissions, and if you submitted twice, you were asked to rate ten, and uh, it is a lot to go through. We only had 20 entries total, but it is a lot to go through 10 uh, entries, some of which were quite long, and evaluate them on a mix of criteria, and then write down additional free response feedback. And the way that I handled that to make it easier is that I basically just live blogged it as I was reading them, so that I didn't have to go back and and think super carefully about how I felt. I could just write what I felt, and then at the end I could write if there anything if I had anything that changed based on what I read, like. I said this earlier, but actually you handled it quite well, or you know, I could go back and edit it. Because I submitted two entries, I had 10 to read, and I quite enjoyed it, but I understand that it's a lot to go through. Yeah, we learned a thing or two about uh, this format of judging and voting as well, so maybe we could switch it up in the future. Um, in conclusion, just thank you to everyone that was involved in the second annual summer contest, and congratulations to all the winners. I enjoyed the work, and I think that uh, everyone can pick something out of it. Uh, there, there's all, there's at least one useful thing that you can pull out of every group, and that's, that's a guarantee. That's all we have for you this week. Our congratulations to everybody who participated in the group's contest. We encourage you to have a look at the entries yourself. You'll find a link to the contest index in the description of this episode, alongside the usual links to the Night of the Opera subreddit and Discord, and the Green Box on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening to episode 26 of The Green Box. And as always, we'll be in touch.